Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Fifty one thousand plus on their feet. Nobody's left to beat the traffic tonight, I guarantee you. Mark gets the sign. The wind and the pitch. Here it is. One, fly ball, deep left center. Chris, on the run. Yes, 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 yes. 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 Twenty-five lighters on my dresser. Yes, sir. You know I got to get paid. I'm now get ready this is the platinum sombrero podcast with your hosts dylan short and adam doc herbert Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome into the Platinum Sombrero. I am part one of your host, part deux over there, Doc Herbert. We have a very special guest, but before we get to that today, I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who's been listening. Um, got some pretty nice numbers that I'm uh, very, very proud of so far. Uh, we are very proud of where the show is heading, and we also had to give a couple shout-outs to all those who are listening on all of across all of the apps. We got it on iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher. Tune in and Spotify now, as well as a few other ones. Uh, we got a one shout out. We got to give out Tyler Melton, who's probably walking his dogs right now as he's listening to us. So, Tyler, thanks for bringing us when your dog has to pee. Makes us feel pretty good there that we're the podcast of choice. Now, getting into this, we don't have a lot of time for today. So, instead of Doc and I kind of, you know, shooting the breeze for a little bit, we're going to get right into an interview with somebody that. This is a very, very interesting interview. This is somebody that I've, I've been wanting to get on for a while. Grant McCauley over at 92.9 The Game. Uh, he also covers the Braves just vehemently pretty much all the way. Grant, you seem to be um, – I always thought you were hard figure to get a hold of. Doc tells me it was pretty simple. Yeah, no, all you got to do is more or less ask. And, you know, if you show up at the ballpark, it makes it nice and easy because we're in the same place. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, fun to get on, fun to talk about the Braves. Appreciate you guys having me. Glad to have you. Of course. It could just be that I'm not quite, I don't want to say not the brightest bulb, but we'll say not the brightest bulb. Um, (laughs) (laughs) If the, uh, if the inbox is blocked, then uh, if I'm not just throwing out random email addresses and hoping I'm right, then that's about as far as I can go. Now, fun thing here, all three of us were at the futures game last night. Doc and I kind of quit after the sixth inning after it was, almost 11 o'clock by that point. Uh, and we just kind of dipped out and went home, but Grant was a trooper and stayed for the entire game. So Grant, what did you see? Let's just 
we'll, we'll talk about the earlier stuff later with the Pache, but what did you see from guys like Tukey and Bryce Wilson? Um, and by that point, pretty much just the bottom barrel of the rosters towards the end of the game. Did anybody kind of sneak out to you as having a pretty good performance? Yeah, I, I, you mentioned those two guys on the mound. When you talk about Tuki Toussaint and, and Bryce Wilson, Bryce is a guy I talked to before the game just to kind of get his thoughts and his reflections on not just the spring that he's had, you know, getting ready for another season of, you know, hopefully building on what he did in Rome last year, but just the fact that he had such a breakout season in 2017. So he was a guy I was really interested to talk to for a little while. And Tuki Toussaint, I mean, that fastball curveball combination is going to play at just about every level. And I know he kind of has those peaks and valleys at times, but he's still a super exciting arm. So even when you start looking at what I would refer to as maybe the back end of that pitching staff, because it is very top heavy as well with some really high end arms, it's an impressive group. And there's something to watch each and every inning. And I think that most of these guys would say that it was quite a pleasurable experience. And one of the most interesting things I think I saw after the game was Bryce Wilson, Ian Anderson, and a couple other guys. I think Joey Wentz, Kyle Muller, all in this little group. And they were coming down the hallway in the visitor's clubhouse. And they just walked out of the manager's, manager's office because their manager on that night was a Hall of Famer, Bobby Cox. And I think it was Ian Anderson, but it may have been someone else who just said, that's really cool. That's Bobby Cox that just managed that game more or less. You know, just the fact that they were able to kind of have that big league experience with a Hall of Fame manager in a big league ballpark that lets them know hey, all this hard work could pay off one day. I mean, it's it's an exciting system, and I think the game was fun on a lot of different levels beyond who wins, who lost, and you know who hit home runs, and maybe who gave up home runs for that matter. You know, I'm a little disappointed that they didn't have something where Bobby could get himself thrown out of one more game. I was kind of hoping I would see that. Um, I thought it would have been a nice touch. But bringing up Tukey and Bryce Wilson, what's your gut instinct on on those two? Do either of them stay in the rotation or do they end up in the bullpen? Because, as has been mentioned a thousand times, the system is so cluttered with really good starting pitching. I'm talking about there's a glut of two to fours in this, in this rotation that you've, you're hopefully building up. Some guys are going to get bumped to the pin. Does a guy like Bryce and a guy like Tukey, who you take his two-pitch mix that you mentioned with his fastball and his 12-6 curve, mm-hmm. do those two move to the pin and become potential dynamite pieces back there? I think it's way too early to think about that for Bryce Wilson. But for Tukey Toussaint, I think the double-A this year starting role will be what they're going to look at him as. And I've said the same thing with Mike fulton since 2015, I guess you leave these guys in rotation for those innings and that development as long as you possibly can. And this kind of question, I think, may may apply more to guys that have reached the big leagues and had to kind of drop back down into Gwinnett. I mean, they've been toying with this with Matt Whistler. They've toyed with this possibly with Lucas Sims and Aaron Blair, though not as much as they did with Whistler last year. But I think that those three guys are a very interesting case study in that there is going to be attrition in in this prospect glut that they have built up. I mean, you mentioned there's a lot of arms, but obviously you have to have a rotation at each and every level, so somebody's got to cover those innings. So you don't want to jump the gun and cut off somebody's development you know, thinking too far down the line. I think that there are important steps to take. And for these guys, especially the high school arms, when you think about the Wilsons and the Toussaints and, and guys of that nature, not as much a guy like Kyle Wright or A.J. Minter, for that matter, who was already a reliever more or less or was headed that way. 
Um, it's just each and every guy has their own, you know, space and development that you need to be able to give them the time to both grow and to make mistakes, to make their adjustments and to kind of put themselves on whatever trajectory leads you to know what their best role may be or leads you to know what role they may not be suited for so that you can make that change. So to spill a lot of words out there and, and tell you, I like to leave guys in rotation as long as possible in order to make these kinds of decisions because you can always figure that out at AAA and the big leagues. If you need to change somebody over, there are hundreds of examples throughout baseball, probably thousands if we go back you know, over the years. And you know, some that pop to mind immediately, a guy like Andrew Miller, he was a huge prospect starting pitcher when he came up. And now he's a big-time reliever whose career just took him down that path naturally but down the line. So timing's everything, and for everybody, I think it's a little bit different. I think that there's going to be a bit of a logjam in Mississippi uh, this coming year because you're going to have Wright, you're going to have Matt Withrow, uh, Tucker Davidson, Jeremy Walker, Tukey, Tyler Pike. You're going to have all these different guys. So it could wind up being a situation that kind of figures itself out on its own because I mean, yep. unless you unless you plan on running out a six seven man rotation, then uh, it's inevitable that somebody's going to wind up getting pushed back there. Yeah, it, it it does, and these things. I know this is the most cliche thing we hear it every spring. I kind of I don't cringe when I hear it, but I just say, oh, there it is. There's the first time I had to hear it. It's going back to Bobby Cox or whether it's Brian Snicker or whether it's a front office executive. These things have a way of working themselves out because you can have the best laid plan about the five guys you want here and the seven guys you want there or eight guys that you want in the bullpen, and if somebody gets hurt, you know, somebody doesn't perform, someone else might get traded, and the next thing you know, you've got to change that plan. And that affects the minor league level too because anything that happens at the big league level, there has to be a move underneath that is going to hopefully pick up that layer and fill that gap for the most part. So um, that, that's another thing I just I think about when I look at each and every one of these arms and and the assets that they are. You just want to manage them as responsibly as you can and put them in the best position to succeed. So, you know, there will be a lot of good pitchers in high A. I think that's where Bryce Wilson will be to start the year. Joey Wentz. I think Kyle Muller will be in Rome. Um, then you start to look at that double A rotation and. You know, you have quite a few guys that could be in that particular mix. We haven't even brought up Sanchez and some of the other arms that are in this, you know, glut of young prospects that they're going to have to find innings for, for sure. Uh, But I don't know that any of them right off the top of my head are going to be making that big transition to reliever anytime soon. You mentioned Ricardo Sanchez. He was one of my favorites. Uh, He's such an enigma for me. When you look at his actual, his delivery and his mechanics, they are so clean and pretty there's so little wasted motion and then he goes out and gets runners on base and then just seems to to lose all semblance of of control talking about those pitchers i think that would put him a little bit farther behind um did he get in at all yesterday? I don't know if he was even on the rosters for yesterday's game. No, he he was not there yesterday. He is the one guy, though, that in my time down in spring training, because I was there a lot earlier before the minor league games really got started, and I came back just briefly, he was the one minor league pitcher that I got to see, starting pitcher that was kind of on that radar, on that list of you know top 30 prospects that you'd be looking at, uh, no matter who's ranking them. You know, Sanchez is going to be on that list, so... Um, I was impressed with a couple of innings that I saw from him. Again, it was an inter-squad game, so I can't take too much out of it. But you mentioned I like the delivery. I think that there's a lot of upside there. And I think he's a guy that's kind of been able to, to live a little bit more in the background as the Braves have gone out and had these ridiculous draft classes with just a, an embarrassment of riches that they keep bringing in the first you know, few picks that they have every year. It seems like they stockpile 
three to four more high ceiling arms before they do anything else. So Sanchez was an early piece in that rebuild for the previous regime. And you put him with Mike fulton who was a little bit higher up on the list and, and already had some big league time. The Braves were still, you know, even three years ago, trying to build depth at each and every level. And I think that's one thing they've done extremely well through some of those trades and, and really well, especially well in the draft. Sanchez, I I was really, really surprised. Uh, I mean, one of the first things that Anthopoulos did after he took over, because he took over on uh, Monday, and then that Friday was the the deadline to to set your roster for the for the rule five yep. and for all of the different guys like peterson and demerit that that everybody was kind of thinking would get protected they didn't and then sanchez got added to the 40 so i i have always been intrigued by that move i wonder it tells you a lot yeah it, it, yeah, really, does. it really does yeah it's absolutely. never been a question of stuff with sanchez it's always been between the ears because going as far back to his his first time around in in rome he got passed up, and he was part of uh, one of the really, really strong Rome rotations, and he saw, pretty, what, I think it was four out of the five battery mates moved up a level, and Sanchez had to repeat um, due to a, a few outlying things. He's got some great movement. He's got some natural movement on his fastball, which is nice to see, uh, but he's obviously farther down on the list when you're talking about these pitchers, yeah. and the ones that you saw last night, you got to see a ton from really some of the biggest glowing arms that are there's some of the most talked about arms young arms in baseball right now uh you got to see kyle wright throw a a really really strong inning uh soroka looked very good as he's looked all year uh looked like it was no no real struggle for there although he almost got hit in the face and i almost uh i almost lost (laughs) lost my breath at that point um i think i was most surprised with how good kyle mueller looked delivery wise and sitting at 97, this is a guy who had some shoulder fatigue coming in. Now, obviously, yep. it was uh, his first time in, in full-season ball, so it's to be a little bit more expected. But I was pleasantly surprised with how Mueller looked. Now, he was obviously ramped up a bit, and you mentioned – we mentioned before the show talking about the the new baseball or the difference in the major league ball and the minor league ball, talking about where the seams sit, um, and the seams are lower on the major league ball than they are on the minor league, so that, that gives you a little bit less grip. Um, but – I was pleasantly surprised with how Mueller looked because when I was when I was looking at him before as he got drafted, he had kind of a, a, a I don't want to say a bad delivery, but there was a fair bit of torque on his delivery. This one looked much much smoother. Yeah, I think they want to clean any of those things up they can from amateur to pro ball. Obviously, that's a big part of the development is you know mechanically, physically these guys are developing. I mean, Kyle Muller, I don't know how much more physical development he needs to do because. He walks into a room, if you're standing around in that clubhouse downstairs, I mean, he towers over everybody that he's next to. I mean, he's six foot five, I'd say a solid at least two thirty. I would I would ballpark it there. But, you know, he's a guy that's filled out quite a bit. Ian Anderson is a guy that's filled out quite a bit as well. He's a big arm. And you don't realize how big Mike Soroka is. And you, at every picture I've seen of Mike Soroka, he always looks like he's just kind of got that Steve Avery-esque baby face look to him. But then you go spend any amount of time around him, and he's one of the smartest and most engaging and most cerebral pitching prospects, probably the most that I've talked to. So you can't help but come away impressed with him. With and Jamal last night Anderson was my first. Thighs. He has, that? he has running back thighs. Soroka does. Yeah. And he's a, he's a big guy. And I think that that, that big, that's that very good foundation for his mechanics, which are easily repeatable and smooth. And, you know, the way that he attacks hitters and the way that he adjusts and the, and the way that he studies the game 
you know, there's tangibles and intangibles that you can put together in the case of a guy like Mike Soroka, and you can see why he is so special. And even at 20 years old, heading into AAA, you you just you realize why this guy has success because even when he fails, he learns as much, if not more, there than he did, you know, by going out and rolling around or rolling out, you know, great start after great start. He's just a guy that gets it, and I think we're going to see him sooner than later. That's great news. Big, big Soroka fan. Thought thought he looked great last night. Thought he's pretty much looked great the whole time that he's been uh, that he's been up or uh, that he's kind of been on the radar. But the the real star of the futures game, as we kind of alluded to earlier, was Christian Pache, who um, for a guy who's never hit a home run that counted, he hit two that sure counted last night, and he did it off of uh, off of a major league or a major league ballpark. That's a really big step for him going into uh, going to this next season. Yeah, pretty impressive stuff there. Talked to Sean Newcomb after his start. And, you know, he said, yeah, I'm, I'm out there trying to get my work in more or less. And I was just going right after him with a fastball, and he hit it out of the yard. And that was the first one. The second one, I think he was trying to be, I don't know, if a, a little more uh, aggressive or a little bit more advanced in his approach. And, you know, Pache dropped the barrel on him again and got that one out of the park. So it was more of a, you know, I just got to tip my cap because the kid went out there and put two good swings on you know, two pitches off a, a pitcher with major league experience in a big league ballpark. I mean, that's that's some pretty special stuff. And I think there's some good camaraderie and chemistry amongst the Braves contingent of Latin American prospects that I got to see as they were you know, mulling around together prior to batting practice. I think Pache and Ronald Lacuna have a, a particularly fun dynamic. I mean, I looked around in the in the post game media scrum. Uh, when we were talking to Christian Pache through the interpreter, the same interpreter that Ronald Acuna uses, and I just happened to look behind me, and Ronald Acuna had stopped everything he was doing and was just standing there listening and smiling as Pache talked about his two-home run night and what the experience was like for him. And not just giving him a hard time, but I think genuinely happy for the fact that, hey, my buddy had a good game, and he's getting a taste of this thing that I've been dealing with and had to you know, be subjected to talking to media you know, seemingly probably since he walked onto the spring training complex down at Disney. So, yeah, I think Pache really stole the show, no doubt about it. But, you know, Ronald Acuna in action at SunTrust Park, I think a lot of folks wanted to see that. And, you know, I, I think we're going to see that sooner than later. And he's not the only dynamic outfield prospect that the Braves have because Pache, I think, is going to be building up uh, his name throughout this year. And a lot of folks uh, may really know a lot about him by the time we get to the end of 2018. And a lot of the prospect circles, Pache is, at least in Keith Law's mind, is is one of the elite prospects in the game. You talk about where he's at right now. He is already, he's been described as gold glove caliber defense right now. Uh, And I would agree. He has an absolute laser cannon of an arm. He's very accurate. He reads the ball well off the bat. The question with him was always, how would he hit? And when he got signed, the, the thought process on him was outstanding hit tool doesn't strike out a lot. Well, as he's come over here, he struck out a fair bit uh, and he hadn't hit. He hasn't hit a he still hasn't hit technically a, a home run that counts in a game yet. But at six two and one eighty five, there's been a ton of people that just thought that the power was on its way. Now, when they started in this year, when, Al, oh, when Anthopolis came in, they brought in a new hitting coach, I believe, for the minor leagues. Uh, and from what I have heard. Grant, maybe you can corroborate this or just tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, he has been working with kind of bringing a lot of these younger guys into kind of the fly ball revolution mentality uh, and getting them to put more lift on the ball, per se, instead of uh, going for the the slap contact route. 
Yeah, I mean, launch angles all the rage, as the kids are saying. I mean, everybody is aware of the changes you can make to your swing and the fact that, hey, ground balls aren't the best. Line drives, fly balls seem to be a lot better. Now, what kind of fly balls you get, obviously, you know, the distance is going to tell the story. But, yeah, I I think that that's something they certainly concentrated on. And with him, a, a year ago this time, I was up in Rome for a workout that they held before the season got started. And I have video that I'm going to have to go dig up. I know I put it on my computer. I also posted it on Twitter. I was watching Christian Pache take batting practice. And at that point, he'd only played those games in rookie ball and the GCL and really hadn't gotten his feet under him, so to speak, in a full season of professional ball. I was watching him swing there and thought, there is power in this swing. It's there. I mean, it's, it's going to happen. The question was when. And lo and behold, he goes an entire season, a full season, Hits pretty well for himself. Uh, I think the approach is pretty good, but he never tapped into that power. And I'll say this. I'm not sure he weighs 185 pounds anymore. I think he went home and put some serious work uh, from, I would say, I guess September, October, when the minor league season is already over, uh, well before the big league season is, all the way through to come back to spring training where he was, was spending time in big league camp, which is a credit to what the Braves think about this guy. So um, a tremendous athlete, probably overall may have a better body and i don't mean this in in a bad way but may have a a better body a better look than ronald acuna does because he's just that much taller but you know acuna's got you know a 70 scale tool in pretty much all five tools that you look at so that's the difference between the two is that pache is a work in progress ronald acuna is simply a phenom and both of these guys, I think, are going to be, you know, big pieces of the Braves' future if everything goes according to plan. But there are some steps that Pache is going to have to take to show that he has developed. And maybe this futures game, this little two-home run outburst, is a sign of things to come this year. Not saying he has to win a home run title, but just seeing those extra base hits start to pile up, the speed's there, the gloves there. I think the approach at the plate is good. He may strike out a little bit, and that's fine, but I think he's going to walk a little bit as well. So that'll be super helpful. If he gets to that 10, in between the 10 and 14 home run mark per year, what does that put him in your eyes? What does uh, where, where does that place him among among the pro game? Uh, as far as like a, a comparable player or as far as just where he might rise on a on a prospect list? More like a level of like what, what type of tier of player would he be? Like obviously you have your Mike Trout tier on his own and then everybody's just yeah. kind of placed below that would it put him in the would it put him in the um, I, I would probably i would probably put him more in the christian yelich mold and i'm not saying they're the same player but it's a guy that has such a well-rounded game and does so many things well but he may never be the superstar that you build your entire franchise around but he could be you know the the robin to someone's batman and you'd feel pretty darn good about it and the fact that you know, again the braves were able to get him extremely you know young and malleable and able to mold him knowing that he had the skills and the abilities, you know, that speaks to the development that the minor league system is going to be expected to be you know, churning out these guys. And and he's, I think for me, he's a top 10 prospect in the Braves organization. I would say he's a top 100 prospect at the very least, even if people want to kind of ding him for the lack of power last year, but he's a player that seeing what he does this year, I think might be that, that pivotal moment where you say, Here's a guy we can also build around, and that'd be a pretty good club to jump into when you think about the members of that club right now for the Braves seem to be Freddie Freeman, Ender Inciarte, Ozzie Albies, Ronald Acuna, probably still to some extent 
uh, Julio Tehran, depending on, you know, which way the Braves go with that long term. And of course, you know, Dansby Swanson seeing what he does in 2018 is a pivotal year for him. So, you know, Pache could march into a very exclusive club for the Braves in terms of the assets that they're really trying to build this club around. All right, we got to get off the prospects here before we run way far out of time. Um, I do got to ask, though, the the Flaherty and the Borges signings, what was your thought on them? They just kind of came out of nowhere, and in my mind, at least, they don't make a whole lot of sense. Does it, What does it mean for, for guys like the prospects like Rio and Dustin Peterson and guys who aren't necessarily – who aren't Acuna-level prospects but are, who are guys right. that – were these two not on the on the squad, very well could have broken camp with the Braves, particularly Peterson, who has looked very good in the spring and has continued to, I don't know who he worked with, but his defense is light years better than it was before he went down with that handmade injury. Yeah, I, I do think that he looks better. And I think that if anything, you know, not necessarily, I, I don't know that he did anything extremely different over the offseason other than the fact that he was healthy and was not trying to come back you know, in season from a hand injury, which I don't think you really get over that kind of thing. I mean, even Freddie Freeman with that wrist, he wasn't the same guy when he came back. But, you know, 80% of Freddie Freeman is better than probably 80% of Major League Baseball players, and that's how good he is. But for a guy like Peterson, I think it stunted his development last year. If you don't get added to the 40-man, which you alluded to earlier with the Rule 5 you know, selections and, and the fact that he was out there and some club could have taken him and they didn't, uh, it's a little bit harder because you you got to push your way into that that upper echelon. But I think you'll have an opportunity in Gwinnett this year to make up for that lost time. I, I do think that he has you know fans and or supporters inside the organization that would love to see him step up and make that a, a decision that they have to make. But I I kind of look at more so the signings of Borges and Flaherty being really affecting, particularly the Flaherty signing, affecting Rio Ruiz, and who was a guy that did go home in the offseason and who worked with Doug Lotta, who was the hitting coach and the guy that turned Justin Turner uh, into a totally different player with the Dodgers. But that kind of stuff takes a little bit of time. And I think that Rio, he's got some power. He continues to work his butt off every offseason. He comes in. He's in shape. He works hard. I mean, you, you just he has the ethic. And I think he's got some of the talent there. But like like I said about you know, these pitchers earlier, you know, some people are going to, to, to cross that, you know, finish line and, and complete the race, so to speak, and make it to the big leagues and stay. And others are going to going to fall off and there is going to be some attrition. And I think he's kind of caught in one of those places where uh, it's just not quite enough for them to have felt comfortable to go into the season with him there, even with Johan Camargo right behind. So um, Flaherty, that may not be a long-term thing. And that's, it remains to be seen. I mean, you certainly look at his career and you don't really expect a whole lot. Borges, I know, is, is a guy that they like because he's a good defender and gives him a little bit more of an option in the outfield than an unproven commodity. And I think to some extent, they want to give opportunities where they can. And clearly, Ronald Lacuna is earmarked for the biggest opportunity this year, but also have the layers that they need to make it through a season without having to run out in May, June, July, and sign guys or trade for guys and grab a lot of you know spare parts and then throw them directly into the big leagues. I mean, it may feel a little bit like that in spring training by adding you know Borges and, and Flaherty right here close to the end, but I do think it allows them to have at least some layers of the veterans that you do need at some point during the season to patch a hole somewhere. And Anthopoulos said before the season that the OD roster was not going to wind up necessarily being the the end-all, be-all for the season. Correct. 
especially when you look at guys like Gahara, Whitley, Camargo, Acuna, and Anibal Sanchez. Yep. They're all going to be coming in the next uh, four to six weeks. So there will wind up being some casualties in there somewhere, whether it's Chris Stewart or Lane Adams or, or Flaherty or, or Borges or any of these guys. So it'll it'll be interesting to see what the next couple of weeks look like for, for sure. Yeah, riding the, the John Gant Express between Gwinnett and Atlanta. Yeah, there's a lot of decisions to be made throughout the season. I mean, I, I think that they wore out that Express a couple of years ago with just the frequent up and down. And it felt like they really were managing a 30-man roster with the way guys were coming in and off of you know, that Gwinnett shuttle. But it's, it's one of those things that it is a fluid situation. And the opening day roster, very seldom the roster that you're going to close the season with for a variety of reasons. And you know, some of that's going to be the play of certain players. Some of it's going to be injury. And then some of it you're going to chalk up to just other factors that come up throughout the year that just may change your plans. So uh, I think Anthopoulos has a pretty good grasp on just trying to have the right kind of pieces to be able to plug and play a little bit without having to scramble. I don't think that he's a guy that wants to be signing Ryan Howard to a minor league contract, you know, halfway through a season because, hey, we've got to figure something out or James Loney or you know, whatever it may be, because those are the kind of moves that were being made the last couple of years when you don't have, you know, tangible, you know, feasible backup plans and options and, and just depth and, and depth may not be sexy, but every team needs it. And it's one of the things that makes a team like the Dodgers so good was the fact that they had depth and role players and guys that stepped up and, and made the most of their opportunities. Who do you have earmarked as your biggest breakout potential player this year besides Acuna or Soroka? Um, in the minor leagues, I, I would probably, and this is before, this is not cheating, but before I would have said Christian Pache is a guy that I'm most looking forward to seeing what he does. But if you want to go with somebody other than that obvious answer coming off the recency bias of a two home run game, I want to see what Austin Riley does this year. And I want to see what Alex Jackson does this year. I think they're both guys that are going to head back to Mississippi for at least a little while. And in both their cases, they finished the year there last year. But they're also guys that I think could be on the, the at least the semi-fast track to making an impact with the Braves within the next year to you know, 18 months or whatever it may be. So those are two guys I'm extremely excited about. I think Riley, with what he did in Mississippi, being so far and away beyond what he had done in high A, which is a, more of a pitcher's league in Florida, I was, I was extremely impressed. And I've been extremely impressed with what I've seen this spring out of him. That power is real. People may question, well, what is what is it he can become? What is it he's going to be? But if you spend some time around and watch and see the fact that he's improved defensively each and every year, and the bat just it's loud <laughs> when he when he makes contact. It, I mean, it, the ball is going to go a long way, and he has made good enough contact throughout the minors to make you believe that this is a real tangible power hitting prospect. So we'll see how they decide to tackle third base in the offseason at the big league level. But that's a kid I'm super excited about. I think that the the biggest indicator of a successful season here, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, will wind up being prospect growth, not just for, for the guys like Pache, Riley, and Jackson, some of the less heralded guys, uh, you know, your Tucker Davidsons and your yeah. uh, Tyler Pike, uh, whoever. But uh, so prospect growth is obviously going to be a the a big deal this year, but if you had to put a number on what you would uh, consider a successful season for wins for the big league club this year, where's your head at for that? 
It's interesting, and I guess it's kind of a nuanced answer. I've seen a lot of people that have kind of put that over-under for Braves wins this year at 74.5, and I would take the over on that. And I, But I would caution and say, look, this is a club that even last year clawed its way to 500 at one point and then you know fell off a cliff for about six weeks. And that happened to them in 2015 when they were a very flawed roster both of those years. This roster is not perfect, but I think this roster, especially factoring in Ron Lacuna, not too long from now. Hopefully, Luis Gohara, not too long after that. And, of course, Johan Camargo being back in the fold. It's a team that is just going to be a little bit more exciting and a little bit more fun than thinking about Alberto Cayaspo being your opening day third baseman and Eric Young Jr. being your opening day center fielder. And, you know, it, it was there were some teams, Johnny Gomes being your opening day left fielder, whatever it may be and wondering if Melvin Upton Jr. is ever going to hit to earn his contract. They're not in that situation anymore, which I think is a good thing. So I would I would say 75 wins would be about where I'm, I'm looking. But as I've said many times in the last few years, and, and it just bears repeating, the difference in a 75-win team and an 81-win team, which would get them to 500, is one win per month. And if they can do that, they could make a big step from a club that last year, for all intents and purposes, was about a 75-win ball club. If you put Freddie Freeman back on the team and he never goes through that wrist injury, maybe they do claw their way back up closer to that 81-win plateau, which would be, in my mind, a successful season because it's a step in the right direction. It would involve a ton of development and, and a ton of you know chemistry built, I think, for the big league club and the core of the big league club. It would also catapult them into a pivotal offseason with a huge star-studded free agent class, not just with the Harpers and the Machados, but a lot of really useful players and the Braves hopefully having a lot of money to spend to fill some of their needs. All right, last couple questions here. Um, whose year? Like, who has to have a good year? Who's who's on notice this season? I think Dansby Swanson is, and I don't say that to you know pick on a guy coming off a bad year, but. There, there's a serious question for him to answer, not just to, you know, the the organization or, or the fan base or whatever it is, but I think him personally, it's a serious question he wants to answer for himself because this is a guy that never really struggled to any, you know, moderate or or greater degree in his entire life as as a baseball player. Once he, you know, set his mind to that high school, college. I mean, he was a successful college player. That's how you become the number one pick in a draft and. I think that the expectations and also the path that was taken to the big leagues might have asked a bit too much from Dansby Swanson and didn't really put him, as I said earlier, in a position to succeed. Sure, we all want to see these guys come up. And we all want to you know, see them become stars, but not every prospect is going to become a star. And I don't know that Dansby Swanson's ever going to be the franchise-style player, but I think he can be an extremely good big league player for a long time. But there's going to be offensively, he's going to have to swing the bat better. And defensively, which I think was the carryover effect of his struggles at the plate, he's going to have to play a really solid big league shortstop. Otherwise, the Braves are going to have to ask some difficult questions about what they need to do as they get more and more serious about winning, which they have said, not just hinted at, but said that they want to do by this time you know, next year, I would imagine. So he's a guy that I think is, is on notice. Not that he's going to be kicked out the door, but this is a huge year for him and one where he has to answer some questions and silence some doubters, I believe. And you mentioned you mentioned the defense, and I'm with you. I, I do believe most of it was a carryover from offense. But yeah. it is an interesting scenario. If Dansby was not a college shortstop, 
He did not play short until his teammate, uh, was it Vicente Condi, got drafted by the Yankees. And then Dansby senior year, he moved over and played shortstop. Now, he has plenty of range to play shortstop. Uh, As a matter of fact, I would state it's been a while since I've seen Ozzy play short, so I I can't speak 100% on his range. But just talking about Dansby and Camargo, Dansby has better range than Camargo, and he has a better first step. Now, he doesn't have the arm of Johan. Nobody does. <laughs> Nobody does. But it is an interesting question of, is Dansby just a guy that needs to be moved off the premium position to kind of get out of his own head? And I, I'm not saying this, and I've, I've been notoriously down on Dansby because I've kind of fought against the superstar projections. And I, I'm not saying this to be mean to Dansby. But some players, you move them to second instead of short, or you move them, basically you just move them off of short and it, it kind of eases up some of the pressure and allows them to relax a little bit somewhere else, and it ups the entire quality of their game. It might, but I just don't see that being a move that they're going to make. And and one of the big reasons why is, and talking to a lot of folks around the organization, talent evaluators, and then also scouts and people that watch these guys on a regular basis, I asked over the last year and leading into Dansby's demotion and, and Ozzy's promotion to the big leagues, which one do you think is the better shortstop? And every single person said, I think Dansby Swanson is the shortstop of the two. Not a knock on Albies that he can't play the position, but just that Dansby is the guy that seems to profile all around as a better fitted shortstop. They have about the same arm, and they felt like Dansby's range and instincts and abilities that he had shown you know, outside of the struggles of last year, which at some point you do have to kind of put that off to the side and see you know, if he is able to demonstrate that he is a better player than the numbers bore out last year, which I do think that he is. DeMargo, I, I just I don't see him being a guy that they look at as an everyday shortstop. I see him still more as a super utility guy, and he is a guy that is not without his own flaws. I, I don't think he's a particularly great fielder, though he's probably adequate, but his arm makes up for a lot, and it had all the way through the minors because, again, nobody's got a better arm than he does. So they've got some options in-house, but I don't see them really moving away from Swanson. And I don't know that you can move him to second base if you really like what you've installed at second base, which is Ozzy Albee. So it's kind of a conundrum. Well, I know that we're starting to run a little, run a little low on time. So I will, uh, I will just ask the last question I have for you. Uh, which brave under the age of 25 will post the highest war this season? Ron Lacuna. And I think Ozzy Albies can really push him, but I think it's Ron Lacuna. And maybe I'm just riding on the hype train and I've been around it and too close to it for the last you know, five or six weeks and what I saw last year. But all together, I mean, this this guy's the real deal. He's a complete package. And, and two weeks in the minor leagues is not going to take away from, I think, his overall numbers. But that's not to slight a guy named Ozzy Albies, who I think could make a big step this year toward being an all-star caliber second baseman. But tempering the expectations for both, and all things being equal in terms of just the individual skill sets, I think Acuna has the most to offer, you know, top to bottom of any player that the Braves have had all around prospect-wise since Andrew Jones, and that's pretty exciting. Um, now, since that, I'm going to have to ask one more thing in closing. Uh, we had Jim Callis on last week, and uh-huh. he posed the question of who did we think would be better at the end of their careers, war-wise, Ronald Acuna, or Freddie Freeman, and it's just pure one-on-one. And all three of us ended up saying Acuna. Where would you sit if I asked you the same question? Um, I, I'm first 
instinct is to agree because it's easy to, and he gives you, he makes it easy to, you know, buy in and buy all the stock that you can. That's what makes him the blue chip guy that he is. But I also want to, again, to use that operative phrase, temper the expectations at least a little bit because Freddie Freeman was putting up, you know, MVP caliber numbers last year. And he doesn't get to do it in a position that, at least in, in my mind, when we start looking at defensive metrics, which I think are extremely volatile and don't always tell the full story of, an, of, a, of a fielder, you know, he doesn't do it at a position that really adds a lot of value to his overall wins above replacement at first base. And, and that's just kind of the way that I've looked at it and most of the folks that I've kind of talked to about it. Whereas Acuna and outfielders in general seem to benefit a little bit more or get judged maybe a little bit more harshly for being bad at their position when the metrics come into the the equation. But I think Acuna is going to be outstanding in the field. I also think he's going to be outstanding at the plate. So that combination of those two things, when you start getting into the, the advanced statistics and the, and the Sabre side of stuff, that may be the X factor that makes Acuna overall a more valuable player, but I don't want to come out here and tell you, Oh, he's going to be Mike Trout because I think that would be incredibly irresponsible. And, no one's Mike and probably Trout. not the best comp to put on a guy. And no one is Mike Trout ever. Uh, that, that man is, was created in a lab. He's not a real player. He's not right? a real person. All right. Well, we are officially out of time. So Grant, thank you so much for coming on with us. If there's anybody out there who's listening to us, who's, who's dumb and isn't following you, can you let them know where they can find all of your work at please? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Grant McCauley. That's G R A N T M C A U L E Y. Same thing for Instagram. You can also like my uh, Facebook page, which is around the big leagues. I've got a podcast. I've been on hiatus for a while, working through a few things, but hoping to have that cranked back up as we get into the season. And, of course, you can find my works on 92.9thegame.com. I've got two articles in the incubator right now, one that I finished just before we jumped on the phone about Ronald Acuna's kind of his, his, where his head is at as he heads to the minor leagues and awaits his call to the big leagues. Another one that I'm, I'm kind of excited about, maybe in, a, in just a total you know, old-school nerd kind of a way, was I went back and looked at the opening days for the Braves all the way back to 1966 for the Atlanta club to see who's made the most starts, and who some of the most oddball names are amongst Braves' opening day lineups since 1966. So what is that, 52, 53 years now? And I had a lot of fun doing that, and we're going to post that uh, on Thursday prior to the Braves' opener against the Phillies. Some of the names on there and some of the positions they played might actually surprise you. I'm looking forward to that because I don't know if I'll see many that are worse off names than Eric Ibar or Alberto Cayaspo, but I'm excited to read it. I present to you the 1980s. (laughs) All right, Grant, once and again. And the 1970s, for that matter. That's before my time. So, actually, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm I, I'm lucky. I came in in 91. So, I like yeah. to, as, as soon as I was born, the Braves were good. So, well, for all intents and purposes, my fandom and, and my love for baseball really was born in the, in the late, late 80s and early 90s. So, I, I think I kind of was able to skirt in under that deadline of having to suffer through a couple of decades. But, Outside of Hank Aaron and Dale Murphy and maybe a handful of others for a very finite amount of time, the Braves had some really challenging years. So it makes you appreciate what they did in the 90s and what they're hopefully putting in position themselves to do again if they can follow that blueprint. It sounds awesome. I can't wait to read it. Grant, one more time, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. You got it, guys. Thanks. Hopefully we can do this again sometime this year. Thanks for having me. Anytime you want. And that was Grant McCauley, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you guys so much for listening. We will have this up in a little bit. Everybody out there, 
Have a great weekend. Enjoy opening day, which starts Thursday. Enjoy the season, Doc. Thank you for joining me as always today. Always a pleasure, Dylan. We'll catch you guys next week right here on the Platinum Sombrero. Thanks, bye.